have a question for you. Is there such a thing as right and wrong, or is there only your preference? Is there such a thing as objective, real morality, or is everything really just your opinion? Who are you to impose your morality on someone else? Shouldn't everybody be free to decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong? So you go to college and your professor makes fun of you for your Christian values, your Christian morals. How intolerant you are. How narrow-minded you are. What do you say? How do you respond to a professor like that? For the next 30 minutes or so, I want us to grapple with this idea of morality. Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, says that we live in a schizophrenic society. On the one hand, we, our culture values human life and human rights perhaps more than any culture ever before. We're always talking about, in our society today, about gender equality, racial equality, equal rights, justice for all. We, and we're outraged by oppression or abuse or inequality or unfairness. Yet, if we ask, why should we live in these ways? Why should we care about equality and rights? Why should we sacrifice to help the poor. Our cultural institutions have no answers. All previous societies could point to some shared outside ethical source, some God, some tradition, some outside wisdom that says, this is who you are, this is what life is about, and this is why we should be moral. But ironically, our culture more and more tends to say there is no outside authority. There are no objective moral facts out there. We all have to decide for ourselves what's right, what's wrong. We have to be tolerant. We dare not impose our morality on other people. So do you see the problem? It's kind of uh, moral schizophrenia or intellectual schizophrenia. For, you know, why should I support gender equality, racial equality? Why should I sacrifice to help the poor? Why should I be honest? Why should I not steal? If there's no objective basis for morality, if we're really all free to decide for ourselves what's right, what's wrong, well, what if I decide that lying and cheating are fine for me? You see? So young people, the next time you go to a college class, some university, and one of your professors says, there is no objective morality. There's no outside authority. All of our cultural supposed morality is just that. It's a cultural creation. We kind of made it up, or it's based on some fictional God that we no longer believe in because we're so smart now. And we live in a new day, young people, so you have to decide for yourself what's right or wrong. You don't have to buy into that old God stuff. You don't have to buy into old traditions or whatever. You decide for yourself what's right or wrong. So when your professor starts talking like that, simply raise your hand and say, thank you so much, prof. This is so great because you are telling me right now that it is okay for me to cheat on an exam. 
Right now, you're saying, I could even break into your office and steal all the answers so that I could get A's on, on all, all the quizzes and all the tests. I bet you your professor would say, no, 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 no. Uh, no, I, I don't mean that. You see, you, when, when your professor talks like that, in theory, your professor is a relativist. But in practice, she's an absolutist. On the one hand, and it's schizophrenic when you think about it. On the one hand, she's saying there's no objective morality. You have to make that up for yourself. But then she turns right around and says, absolutely no cheating. You see, it's, it's schizophrenic. It doesn't make sense. And you might be thinking right now, Greg, what does this have to do with Christmas? Everything. Turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 2. The main question we're asking in this Christmas series is, can we still believe in Christmas? I mean, here we are. We're modern people. All this modern technology, and we're so much more aware of the world and co other cultures and other traditions and other, other faiths and, and just so much diversity in our world. And we're trying to figure all this out. And, and, and it's just so easy to say, you know what? There is no real morality today. It, you know, it's just a cultural thing or a personal thing. And, and, and so it's so easy for us, maybe young people, when you go off to university and, and they, they make fun of you for your Christian mores, your Christian values. And even for all of us, our, our culture just keeps kind of pressuring, pressuring, pressuring. And, and we start having doubts about, wow, does my faith make sense anymore? Does, does Christianity make sense anymore? And what I want to show you today is this. Your faith makes sense. The Christmas story makes sense. Jesus makes sense. In fact, when you really get into it and wrestle with it intellectually, it is the secular story. It is the skeptical story that doesn't make sense. I want to give you confidence, young person, that when you walk into that university where they preach tolerance and then turn right around and pressure you to believe everything just the way they do, that you can stand firm in your faith. You can know that your faith in Jesus makes sense, and you can dare to be different. And this is what I want to impress on you this morning, and this is what I want you to take home with you today. Two things. One is your faith in Jesus makes sense, so dare to be different. Let's look at the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 2. Let's pick it up in verse 13. You know, we normally don't read this part of the Christmas story. It's interesting, the Christmas story is recorded in Matthew 1 and 2 and in Luke 1 and 2. And in between Matthew and Luke, you'll find the stories of, of the, the shepherds and baby Jesus and the angel appearing to Mary and Joseph having this dream. And, and, and we, we tend to focus on the manger scene and the shepherds and the angels singing and all the kind of the pleasant things. But here's a part of the Christmas story that we kind of avoid and we don't read in church much especially. At Christmas time, but I want us to focus on it this morning. Matthew chapter 2, let's pick it up in verse 13. You remember in Matthew 2, the wise men, the magi, they come to Jerusalem. They've, they, they've seen this star and they've interpreted this star and then they, they come to Jerusalem and they say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And everybody's in a roar, uproar like, wow, what's going on? Who's the king? King Herod, we know from history, was a vicious king. And he was very jealous and paranoid. In fact, he even killed a couple of his sons and actually killed one of his wives because he thought they were trying to uh, form a coup and take over. I mean, he, he was a brutal man. 
And he's saying, king, you, you wise men, you magi are here. What, what's this king? And, and he says, oh, when you find this, this king child, uh, this Messiah, I want you to tell me where he's at so I can go worship him too. Well, they knew he wasn't going to go worship him. He was going to go kill him. So they, 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 didn't, they didn't tell Herod where they had found him. So here's the story. Verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. When the wise men, they had come to Jesus. And when they had gone, the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod, the king, is going to search for a child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel is weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Just try to imagine being one of those families, being one of those mothers in Bethlehem that first Christmas morning. It was not, oh, silent night, holy night, all was calm, all was bright. It, it was brutal. It was vicious. These soldiers come riding in and kill their baby boys. They were grieving. You know, sometimes people lose their faith because of bad things happening, loss of a loved one, tragedy, hard times. My child died, so I can't believe in God anymore. My spouse died. So I can't believe in God anymore. I just can't believe there's a God when I, when I look at all the suffering and all that's going on in the world. But think about it. Whose God is that? Pain and suffering do not disprove the existence of God. It only disproves the existence of a God who doesn't allow pain and suffering. But whose God is that? It's certainly not the God of Scripture. It's not the God of Christmas. Look at the original Christmas story. It's full of pain and suffering and violence and loss. God allowed these things to happen, and yet he entered into the world as flesh and blood, and he himself took upon our suffering and our pain in order to help us. So you see, the real God actually promises pain and hard times. Remember what Jesus said over in John 13? He said, in this world you will have trouble. The apostle Peter, he said, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through. Anyone going through a fiery trial? He says, don't be surprised as if something strange were happening to you. He says, God allows these things to come to test your faith so that you can grow closer to him. So you see, God never promised us exemption from trials and troubles. What he promises us is his presence, Emmanuel, God with us. He offers us himself. He offers us his peace, and he offers us hope. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're just full of grief. Maybe you've lost a loved one in recent years, or even just this year, 
And this is going to be your first Christmas without them. The true God understands. The, the real God who actually exists, he understands. That first Christmas a long time ago, he entered into the world, a world full of brutality, a world full of people like Herod who would just kill just out of paranoia. And he entered into that world and he grew up and he suffered and he died on a bloody cross for you and me. And he rose again to promise us life and to give us hope. This, this Tuesday night, we're going to host the annual Wint Candle lighting service. We partner with Wint Funeral Home. They come and they provide refreshments and all. And we'll meet right here Tuesday night, 7 o'clock. Anybody's welcome to come. And, and they'll have a guest speaker who will talk about how to deal with grief and loss, especially during the holidays. And we'll light candles in memory of our loved ones. And uh, so if, if you would like to, feel free to come this Tuesday night, 7 o'clock, right here. So as we reflect on this Christmas story, I, I want us to reflect a little bit. Because skeptics love to use the line of argument of look at the suffering, look at the pain, look at the evil, look at the, the, all that's bad in the world so there can't be a God. I want to turn that argument on its head. And I want to tell you this morning, the existence of evil actually proves there is a God. And you go, whoa, Greg, hold, hold on. How, how, how can that be? How can the existence of evil prove that there is a God? Here's how. If there is no God, how do we know what good or bad is? If there is no God, how do you even know what good and evil is? Are. Is there actual right and wrong, objective, real, objective, right and wrong? Or is there only your opinion? C.S. Lewis. I encourage you to read C.S. Lewis. He's, he's deceased now. But back in like the 1950s and 60s, he, he was just an incredible writer. And he was an atheist who became a Christian. And I believe he was from Oxford, England, scholar, worldwide known. C.S. Lewis says, if there is no God, where did you get your ideas of just and unjust? If there is no God and we're all just chemicals and random chance, where did you get your ideas of good and bad? You can talk about your opinion. You can talk about your preference. You can say, I prefer that people treat me kindly. I prefer that you don't beat me up or steal from me. But that's just my preference. That's my, I can't really say anything is right or wrong or evil or good. C.S. Lewis, again, he was an atheist. He became a Christian. He said atheism is really too simple. When you think about it, he says atheism, when you look at it intellectually, it does not make sense. He says atheists are more than happy to do away with God and heaven and hell. And they like the freedom, the supposed freedom that it has. You know, there is no God. There is no heaven. There is no hell. Aha, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. And they kind of like that part of it. But but then they don't realize. But when they do away with God, they're also doing away with love and purpose and meaning and morality and dignity. And many, many scholars and philosophers agree with him. Law professor Michael J. Perry wrote a book called Toward a Theory of Human Rights. And, and Perry says that although it is clear there is a religious ground for the morality of human rights, it is far from clear that there is a non-religious ground, a secular ground for human rights. You see what he's saying? 
He's saying when, well, if, uh, if you believe that there's a God, an outside source of authority, then you have a basis for morality, what's right and wrong. But if there is no God and you're truly secular and atheistic, and he's a law professor, and they wrestle with these kinds of things. What, even in a court of law, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what is morality, what, what is equal rights, and what is the foundation? He, he's basically agreeing with C.S. Lewis, and he says, without God, you don't really have an intellectual foundation to believe in morality and right and wrong. Remember when you were a kid out on a playground, and one of your friends said, hey, you can't do that, you shouldn't do that. And you would say, oh, yeah? Who says? Who says? You? I don't have to listen to you. Oh, the teacher, the principal? Who says I, I can't do this? And, and law professors and philosophers, they, 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 they talk about this. They, 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 they call it the grand says who. He's, they, they basically agree that we are still operating under a Christian worldview where there is a God. A grand says who? Who says, this is who you are. This is why I created you. This is your purpose in life. And this is why some things are right and some things wrong. But if you take that away and you don't believe in, in the grand says who anymore, then the, who says? Who are you to tell me what's, what's right or wrong? If, if Again, if we're just animals evolved by accident, who says what's right or wrong? We're like little kids on a playground, and no one has any authority. In fact, schools are having a hard time nowadays when they try to promote character education. You know, there's all this curriculum out there where they're trying to help kids develop character and ethics and morality so that we can have a, a good, healthy society. Uh, but they're having trouble because if a student says, well, why shouldn't I steal? Why do I have to tell the truth? I mean, if lying or if cheating or stealing a little bit gets me ahead, why not? I mean, what's, what's your basis for saying this is wrong and this is right? And the schools don't have a good answer because they can't appeal to God anymore. So they say things like, well, you'll feel better if you do the right thing. Well, what if my feelings are different than your feelings? Well, society will be better off if we just all treat each other nicely. Well, what if I don't care about society? See, here's what I want you to see. Your faith in God makes sense. Why should you love? Why should you have character and integrity and honesty? Why are some things right and other things wrong? Because there is a good and beautiful God who created us and he designed us to function in a certain way. He made us for love and it requires honesty and integrity and compassion and sacrifice. This is why we should treat everyone with dignity and equality and justice and fairness. In fact, you could say a definition of sin is dysfunction. Sin is when I disobey God's design. And when I disobey God's design, it, I begin to break down. I become dysfunctional. Because you and I are created to function in a certain way. And when we disobey that way, we begin to break down. And when you agree with me that this world is really broken down and broken up and messed up, we're so dysfunctional.
Here's what I want you to see. Your faith in God makes sense. So when you walk into that university, when you go to work, where, wherever, when, when on TV, when, when, when people start to push and prod you, realize you have the intellectual upper hand. Your faith in God makes sense. And here's what I want you to do. Because your faith in God makes sense, I want you to dare to be different. Dare to be different. Don't just buy into what everybody else is saying. The next time somebody says, hey, there is no real right and wrong. Everybody just has to decide for themselves. As soon as they start talking like that, you just jump ahead of them in line and see what happens. They'll say, hey, that's not right. Oh, I thought you just said nothing. You know, for me, it's right. <laughs> Makes good sense to me. Did you know that after that first Christmas, the Jesus movement multiplied exponentially across the Roman Empire? Multiplied exponentially, attracted so many people to Jesus. You know why? Because they dared to be different. In some ways, they were more liberal than their culture. And in other ways, they were more conservative than their culture. You know, we're, we're in a society right now where we're, we're just all drawn. You know, are you liberal or are you conservative? You know, when you're really following Jesus, in some ways you're going to look more liberal and in other ways you're going to look more conservative. For example, back in those Roman Empire days when the Jesus movement was just beginning after that first Christmas, the, the Jesus followers, they, they were seen as liberals, as radical left-wing crazies. I mean, and why? Because they were so much more generous than the rest of their culture. They were so much more compassionate than the rest of their culture. They fed the hungry. They cared for the sick. And this was a new kind of morality. In those days, times were even tougher than they are today. And you had so much trouble just trying to make it for you and your family. You didn't have time or any extra resources to care about anyone else. And so if someone else is sick, you're, why bother helping them? In fact, stay away from them. You might catch whatever they have. But they were into helping people, you know, starting what we would now call hospitals and care facilities. They had a new kind of liberal generosity, giving, sacrificing that was so winsome and so attractive, a new kind of love. In other ways, they were much more conservative than their culture, especially when it came to sexuality. In, in those Roman days, prostitution was common, so common. It was common for a man to have his wife and raise legitimate children and then to have a few girlfriends on the side. It, it was common. By the way, are you aware of this new thing? It's, it's not really new, but it's just becoming more popular, I guess, more common in our culture now. There's polyamorous relationships. Poly meaning many, amorous meaning love, having many lovers. I mean, a husband and wife will be married. And they have their kids, and they're married, husband and wife, but they also have, both of them can have other partners and other, other lovers of, of either sex. And, and so, I mean, there's, you know, no, no, no boundaries. It's just, it's just, you know, anything goes. And, and, I, and I look at that and go, wow, we're coming back to the Roman Empire days. Homosexuality was common in the Roman days. And, and as the Jesus movement, after that first Christmas, began to take hold and, and multiply exponentially across the Roman Empire, these early followers, they said, no, 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 no. There's a good and beautiful God who created us male and female. And sex is a wonderful gift to be enjoyed in marriage. And marriage is supposed to be a covenant. It's not just a cultural thing, but it's meant to be a covenant that reflects the love that God has for us. 
And so what, what, if, what if we really dared to be different and we displayed this kind of mutual love and respect and honor? What, what if people could just tell by looking at our generosity and our sacrifice and how we live our lives financially and, and time-wise and everything, where people could almost just look at us and go, they must be Jesus followers. Look at that love. Look, look, look how radical and liberal and generous there. They must be Jesus followers. Look, look, look at how, how, how they deal with, with the sexual issues. What, what if our young people, what, what if our young people today w- would say, I will not sexualize any relationship outside of marriage? I won't do it because I follow Jesus. And I understand what, what sexuality, what a wonderful gift it is. And I will not use it as a toy. I will not sexualize any relationship outside of marriage. Would we dare to be that different? First century Christians developed a reputation in taking in and caring for abandoned babies. Infanticide was not only legal in the Roman Empire, in some cases it was almost an obligation. Andy Stanley shares a story about how Emperor Claudius famously forced his wife, Ergolanilla, say that three times fast, to abandon her baby, her baby daughter, because she conceived with a, with a freed slave. Apparently he and her, you know, they were married, and, but, but they were having multiple relationships, and she got pregnant from some freed slave, and, and he said, get rid of her. It's called exposure. The exposure was where you would just take a baby, like, out into the woods, out into nature, and just expose it out there. And, and most of the time it would die unless somebody came along and, and rescued it. And, and in the Roman Empire, that was common. That was accepted. That was considered moral because they, their worldview said, well, if the fates decide this baby to be rescued, it will happen and, and it will survive. But if it doesn't, it will die. And, and that's what the fates decided. So the parents were off the hook. They were not held guilty for, for doing that. This was the morality of their culture. It was common. It was, can you imagine mothers taking their babies, and usually it was the baby girls, to abandon them on the shores of a bank or at the edge of a forest or outside of the protective walls of their village. They were left to starve or to freeze or even to be eaten by the wild animals. Why would parents abandon their babies? Well, maybe because of birth defects. Maybe just sheer economics. Hey, we're barely making it here. We don't have another mouth to feed. Maybe maybe because of infidelity, where, hey, I'm not sure that's my kid, so let's, let's get rid of it. Maybe, as in some parts of the world, even today, you know, because of gender. They wanted a boy, not a girl. So get rid of it. Historians have actually found a letter. We don't have their names, but it appears to be sent by a husband to his wife while he was on a work assignment. This was back in Jesus' day, back in the Roman Empire. He writes to his wife and he says, I am still in Alexandria. I beg and plead with you to take care of our little child, and as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. In the meantime, if you give birth, if it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, expose it. Notice it, not her. Yeah, no, no discussion. No, wait till I get home and we'll talk about it. 
No, if it's a girl, expose it. Jesus' followers in this culture dared to be different. They said, this is wrong. Not only will we not do this horrible practice, but, but we, they, they visited the sites where children were commonly abandoned. And they, they took home these exposed children. They said, don't expose your children. Bring them to us. We will take care of them. We will raise them as our own. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of Christmas. Jesus brought a new morality, a new love that the world had never seen before. I still believe in Christmas. Do you? Let's pray together. Lord, help us to see that believing in you makes sense. Lord, give us the courage to be different. Many of us, we, we just we don't have any courage. We've lost our courage. And when people look at us or even look at our morality, they don't see anything different. And Lord, maybe, maybe we're here today and we're doubting, can I still believe in God? Can I still believe in Jesus? Can I still believe in this Christmas story? Help us to see, Lord. Help us to see that we can. Give us fresh conviction. Give us fresh determination. Give us fresh inspiration and hope. And Lord, for those among us who maybe have lost loved ones recently and are maybe even facing their first Christmas without their loved one, I pray that you'd give them extra grace, extra strength as they grieve. Lord, we know that those families that first Christmas grieved at the loss of their little boys. Lord, help us to see that even though we can't explain why you allow so many things to happen as you do, that you are a good and beautiful God and that you entered into this world, Lord Jesus, and you took all the pain and all the suffering and all the sin and all the brokenness and you died and you rose again. And now you come to us and say, follow me, believe in me and I will give you life. Help us to believe that. Help us to dare to be different. And all God's people say, Amen.